Hey guys, before we get started with the episode, I just have two announcements to make. One, uh, I have the Jibs Journal is out now. I send a weekly journal uh, through email every single week that covers uh, episode highlights, tips and tricks that the entrepreneurs in the show have gone over, um, and just other cool things that are happening. If you're interested in being subscribed to that journal, uh, the link is in the description. The second announcement is I've released a course. Uh, so the course is how to crowdfund for your passion project or side hustle. Uh, I crowdfunded over $65,000 in less than 90 days um, through my organization called Research Detroit. Uh, and the, the class is going to cover you know, the nitty-gritty details on, on how I did that, how I delega- delegated the tasks with my team, the templates, the samples. Um, it goes into full detail on how to run an effective crowdfunding campaign. Um, so if you're interested in taking that course, the link is in the description as well. It's just about getting up and doing it and like, you know, finding the time, finding the people and making it happen. You take control and you say, okay, this needs to be done and you do it. And you're never ready to start a business. You <laughs> just either, you either do it or you don't. Welcome to the Jibs Podcast, showcasing Detroit's movers and shakers, bringing you stories that reveal the gusto and grit that's long defined the city and its people. Together, we'll uncover the history and direction of the Motor City, one voice at a time. This is the Jibs Podcast with Jabron Ahmed. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the newest episode of the Jibs Podcast. I'm here with Sarah from Team Femur. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's a beautiful morning. It is. Drove through a beautiful neighborhood. Yes. <laughs> uh, so thank you again for being here. I really appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, so let's get right into it. Can you explain what Team Femur is? Yes. So Team Femur is... Uh, a tech company basically. We developed a free and open source electronic medical record system and it's designed for areas without internet or electricity. So mobile clinics and refugee camps and disaster scenarios. Um, I hesitate to say we're just a tech company because we're also really focused on the data that we collect and utilizing that to research and improve quality of care for mobile populations. So where are you guys working right now? Um, The system's been deployed since 2014 to Haiti, uh, the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, um, Peru, like the Peruvian Andes, uh, and it'll be launched, deployed in in Jordan, in Syrian refugee camps next month. Um, And it's been piloted with FEMA um, for domestic disasters as well out in California. Mm So how did, where did the idea come from? How did it start? Yeah, good question. So we, we were all students, the three of us. There's three co-founders, um, Dr. Eric Brown, Kevin Zurich, and myself. And we were students at Wayne State University. Um, back in 2010, the earthquake struck Haiti. And so we, Eric and I, volunteered in the aftermath of the earthquake. And we worked in clinics. And uh, in one of the clinics, a patient died from diabetes. And when we got back to the States, we learned that another team had been there a month prior. So had we shared information, we would have brought insulin and perhaps gotten her to a hospital. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we noticed the need and the lack of continuity and communication between volunteer clinicians. And a large part of that was not being able to keep electronic records. So we implemented the project into computer science classes at Wayne State University. Uh, We met Kevin there and he joined and the three of us incorporated um, and have volunteered ever since. 
So how are you getting into these different countries? Like, who are you talking to? Great question. Until recently, we haven't done any interviews or any advertisements. It's literally just been word of mouth. A lot of people, like a lot of medical schools have, you know, student organizations that want to go help in these remote areas. Um, and I don't know, word of mouth happened. So University of Tennessee has used us, uh, Louisiana State University, Virginia Commonwealth University, all of these schools of medicine, mm -hmm. um, you know, Google EMR for short-term medical missions and we're one of the only things that comes up. Right. Um, so yeah, so I guess that's how. Uh, sort of, you know, we've, we've presented um, on the importance of data and various aspects of our data collection at academic conferences and I think that's another way how people have heard of us. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I guess I'm really curious to, when you are talking with these different people from different countries, like has there been a barrier of language or maybe barrier of culture or just oh. different kind of understandings that have, um, I mean, either been funny or just frustrating? Yeah, good question. Um, <laughs> two, two stories. Well, the first is that, so our system is designed for American clinicians who are volunteering for a week at a time in a remote setting. Mm -hmm. So, or in a, you know, refugee camp or something. So it's designed for like English speaking Americans working abroad and then they come back. So we don't really interact with people from these different countries or these right. different disaster zones. Um, but I will tell you, I, for the first time had to go to a pharmacy in America. So I, you know, I, I volunteered in Haiti in the aftermath of the earthquake in 2010, 11, 12, and I think the beginning of 2013. So I've never, um, you know, and on those like groups, if you needed drugs cause you were sick, the, you're in like the middle of nowhere, so the, the doctor on the team would give you medicine, you mm. know. Uh, I'd never actually been to a pharmacy until like a couple months ago. <laughs> yeah. And I had to go and I was like, I have no idea how this works. <laughs> yeah. I've never done it in America, but right. that's the only funny story, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you said you you've started in 2014, right? Yeah, um, 2011, we started development. Okay. We incorporated officially as like a group in 2014. Okay, when, it, when it deployed for the first time. But we developed it, you know, the years leading up to that. Right, right. Yeah. So are there any, so that, that was like kind of like the development phase, I'm yeah. assuming. Yep. So like from the development phase up to like implementation and even up until now, mm -hmm. have you faced any like criticisms or obstacles or people being like, you know, this, this doesn't work out? Or, Great question. And I'm yeah. so glad you asked. So there's a lot of controversy around short-term medical missions um, within the medical community and the academic community. And that's because, you know, if you go somewhere for a week, um, how much can you really help someone who has diabetes or mm -hmm. hypertension, you know? Mm -hmm. So what is the point of going for a week and then leaving? And like, you know, how do you know those medicines are being used properly and standards of care in America are not the same standards of care necessarily, um, in, in other regions of the world. So, um, when I say we developed an EMR for short-term medical missions, that's what it was originally designed for. People um, automatically assume that we support short-term medical missions and that we are for them and that we think they're great. Uh, that's not necessarily true. For instance, we started because there was a preventable death, you know, um, because these people, you know, the folks that we were treating relied on us having the right medicine and we didn't have the right medicine. Mm -hmm. So there, it was preventable, you know, so, uh, we started this to, so, so 
we started this to analyze quality of care in these settings, which has not been possible before because there's no, not been record collection or data analysis of these types of groups before. Mm -hmm. And there's about $250 million and probably a lot more that are spent on these types of medical groups um, or medical trips every year. So they should be studied, you know, and the only way to study it is to collect data. And then only recently has there been like other uses for FEMA, so the refugee camps, domestic disasters, et cetera. Um, but we were originally designed to improve and actually study short-term medical missions. So I face a lot of criti criticism, I'd say, with that. Yeah. And I have to convince people that we're, you know, we're doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. Uh, so I guess uh, when, you, when you face that criticism or those mm -hmm. objections, like for you and for your co-founders, like mm -hmm. what kind of like self-talk do you have in your own head to get past those barriers? Or, you know, I'm sure like you get down on yourself sometimes or, you know, I'll get down on myself sometimes. But uh, how do you overcome those things personally? Yeah, yeah great question. Um, because sometimes this feels like I'm fixing roads in, in Asia and I don't live there. Why would I be fixing those roads, you know? So it, it can get a little tough. But, you know, number one, I would say our work is definitely based in evidence. So if you look at, um, there's this academic publication I love to cite, um, all the time and it's he you know doing a literature review of transient medical clinics of these quote-unquote short-term medical service trips um, there is very little empirical data on them so I, I usually just cite the academic material that says that and mm -hmm. it's usually the best like argument um, so with regard to like that sort of criticism but in general a lot of criticism we face is like you know, we're in Detroit and people like to sponsor things that are helping Detroit. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't necessarily have an effect in Detroit. We have an effect in all other parts of the world. So people don't like to like that as much, you know, like right. why aren't you helping your own people? But, right. you know, in these, in these refugee clinics and in, in remote areas, people, um, you know, in America, you can just, even if you can scrounge up five bucks or a buck, you can go get a power bar at, at CVS. You can't in these settings, you mm -hmm. know? So that's the self-talk, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Uh, so where are you hoping to take femur in the next like year, five years, ten years? Great question. So in the next year, we need a home. <laughs> We've all been volunteers for so long. Uh, we don't have offices. Um, so we're really focusing on garnering support here in Detroit and um, sort of launching as a full-out nonprofit, fully staffed here in Detroit. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really pushing that right now. In fact, our first in-person event will be in a month here in Detroit. So it's sort yeah. of like a day-long conference. Um, in five years, and I, let's, let's say seven years, right. uh, our goal is to be financially sustainable. So one idea, you know, we have a couple ideas, and, and one of them is to have a for-profit subsidiary that, you know, feeds money into the parent company, which is a nonprofit. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, a big part of this uh, podcast is like being able to offer tangible advice mm -hmm. for people li listening that want to start like an organization or a business or anything. So, uh, being a nonprofit, yes. uh, what has been your experience, uh, you know, writing for grants or trying to raise money, uh, or just operating as a nonprofit in general? Like, what kind of advice would you give to people? Ooh, so much. So, operating as a nonprofit. Specifically, um, I've found over the years that uh, a lot of folks are very well intentioned and they make a nonprofit and their heart's in a good place and they're well meaning. Um, 
but it fizzles out. And because a lot of folks who do that don't necessarily have MBAs and have studied business or entrepreneurship or whatever. Um, so I try real hard to run our business like a for-profit business. Mm -hmm. The only difference is uh, we do not measure our uh, success by a profit at all, of course. In fact, our goal is not to make a profit. But um, I would suggest, even if your heart's in the right place, you have to have a sustainable way to help people and really understand the problem that you're trying to fix, you know, before, um, before starting to attack it. So you can't, you know, have your heart in a good place and just say, I want to start a nonprofit and then just like find the first, you know, start the first thing that comes to mind. You really have to do due diligence mm -hmm. and really run it like it's a business. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, let's go from talking about femur to kind of like your journey and how, okay. you know, you work, how you became an entrepreneur. Yeah. So, you know, what's your background and how did it get you to where you are today? Yeah, interesting question. So I started this, um, so I started my career as a, as a classically trained ballet dancer. So I left home at a young age and I joined a ballet company in New York and just a few seasons in I had to stop dancing because uh, of an injury. So that's why I was a pre-medical student at Wayne State. Um, and I will say uh, that in itself is probably the best argument for supporting the arts ever. Like, I, I really feel like, you know, I was on this trip in Haiti and this person died and I came up with this way, like this innovative way um, and to, to help fix a problem. And, um, you know, if you're in the arts, you have to be very uh, resourceful and independent and you have to think critically a lot about a lot of different things. And ballet specifically is a very... You know, it's an art form, it's an aesthetically pleasing art form, but it's a very intellectual art form. Um, so I, looking back, I really think those experiences set me up for this. Uh, and I've since made a comeback to my field. So it's, I, I still um, uh, perform. And um, you know, I'm, in a month we'll be back in Chicago filming stuff. But it's, um, you know, being an artist is, is almost like being an entrepreneur. Mm. Um, so I, I would say anything I, you know, you know, learned from the arts, I could apply to this and it helped a lot. And also I had the right partners. I have the right partners. So Eric is a, Dr. Brown is a neurosurgeon. Um, so understands like academia and the clinical mm -hmm. side of things. And Kevin is a software developer. So it was not only my background as sort of an entrepreneur in the arts anyway, but um, having the right partners as well. Right. Mm -hmm. What, um, what practices can translate from you know, ballet to running a business and then even vice versa that you think about consciously when you are doing either one of those things. Yeah. So since I do both, I have to be really efficient. You know, each day I like have to like plan very, very well. So I think just doing both at the same time has, has made me improve um, in both fields because I've had to like, I have no time to waste, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and I think a lot of dancers, um, have things that they do on the side. This happens to be a little bit more technical than most, but a lot of dancers have foundations or, you know, model or have a second thing that they do um, during the off season. Um, other than increasing efficiency, I don't know. And then I guess always being very humble. I think you have to learn a lot constantly. Like if you're if you're the leader, you have to be looking, you know. 10 steps ahead of everyone else. Mm -hmm. And I think in order to do that, you have to humble yourself a little bit and not get too satisfied with where you are, right. <laughs> you know? And so right. if, to be, and you know, and I think 
being a good leader, you always have to be learning. Um, and in ballet, you're just perpetually a student. You know, any form of dance, really, you're perpetually a student. So yeah. I think that's lent itself. So how do you, I mean, you're doing two very technical things. Yes. How are you managing your time? And, you know, if you ever get to the point where you're like burning out or really exhausted, yeah. like how do you, how do you fix that? Yeah, good question. I'm just coming from a month off because <laughs> I was, I was pretty burnt out and I needed a break. Um, and I found that taking a step back has actually made, given me so much more energy. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's, and I will say, um, I feel like I'm still, I know I've been doing this for seven years now, but it's still new. You know, every year it has grown so much that I feel like I'm adjusting constantly to a new schedule and to different things. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know, other than efficiency. And uh, I, think, I think I learned too that like, in the world of entrepreneurship and especially nonprofit entrepreneurship, like social entrepreneurship, it, uh, it doesn't happen overnight, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, I used to get very stressed if we weren't, you know, six, you know, hitting certain goals. And I realized that like, I can't let perfection get in the way of good, you know, so. Right, yeah. right. Um, can you talk about, do you think that there is a specific event in your childhood or from, being a young professional that has really impacted the way that you work today or has kind of defined what you're doing today? Hmm. I've never thought about that. That's a good question. Yeah. Um, I, come I come from a family of entrepreneurs, I will yeah. say. My, my dad had a very successful law firm mm -hmm. in, uh, here in Michigan. My mom had her own court reporting firm. My brother has his own firm. You know, um, and they all have the biggest hearts. <laughs> so, you know, I think kind of a famous story is my, my dad, you know, had clients who couldn't necessarily pay him so they would you know one time I think he got paid in firewood I might be screwing up this story but, but you know like you know um, so I think it's just sort of how I was raised with an entrepreneurial spirit and um, always with an eye towards equitable living for everyone you know? mm -hmm. um, so for anybody anybody listening or watching if they you know they want to they want to chase a dream they want to go towards entrepreneurship or they want to start their own business or anything, you know, they just feel stuck. Like mm -hmm. what kind of advice would you give them? Choose a different field. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't edit that out. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I, I am a firm believer in that there will be joy. And if, and if you hit a dead end, and you get stuck in that dead end, like you, and you sort of inherit that mentality of I'm stuck. Um, you obviously then you won't go anywhere. I would say uh, work on the assumption that everything will work out. Mm -hmm. You know, if you do your due diligence and you keep working, I, I will say it might not work out the way you thought it would, um, but it will work out. And so if you keep that sort of optimism, I think it it, it sort of feeds itself and it will keep itself going. Um, you know, I thought my world was over when I had to leave New York when I was, you know, 19 and uh, everything I'd worked for was gone. Mm. Um, but here I am, you know, it, it, um, it didn't work out the way that I thought that it would, but it definitely has worked out. Yeah. And, you know, and in a way better than I could have imagined. And I think um, that's important. You know, when you think of entrepreneurs, sometimes it's easy to think about young people, but I think that anyone, you know, I, I was in, um, I was at Wayne State as an undergrad in, um, when was that, like 2009, 2010, when people, a lot of my classmates were folks who were reinventing themselves because they got laid off because of the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, a lot of those folks were, were 
launching new arenas in life. And, and so, you know, again, it might not work out the way that you thought it would, but work on the assumption that it will work out, you know, and just keep working. I think that's really good advice. Yeah. I, uh, kind of reminds me of like, uh, so there's like a rule, uh, 10x versus times 10 thinking. You heard of it? No. Okay. So like, for example, okay. let's say that you want to start like a, a coffee shop. Okay. And so you can be like, oh, I want to, I really want to grow this coffee business to be like a a huge corporation, right? Yeah. So you can think of think of it in a times ten model, which would be like, oh, uh, like Caribou Coffee, like the guy who runs Caribou Coffee can do you know whatever he wants. He's a pretty rich guy. He's Caribou Coffee is a nationally known coffee chain. Mm -hmm. But if you want to think about your corporation in a uh, like to the power of ten thinking, mm -hmm. then you have to think about Starbucks. Like how does Starbucks run? The the guy that runs Starbucks can is a internationally known. It's an internationally known brand, right? Yeah. So yeah. if you make every decision on that to the exponent of ten, yeah. uh, thinking that if this decision is gonna get me to that point, yeah. then you're gonna you're gonna get a lot more farther than you think that you're gonna get. Yes. You know. I agree. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, I didn't explain that well, but anyway. <laughs> Uh, no, I get so. <laughs> like exponential. No, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, cool. Is there uh, is there anything else that you feel like you want to tell the listeners or tell anybody that's watching? Uh, Detroit is an exciting place. Yeah. You know, and uh, I used to come to Detroit to rest. You know, from and like visit with family, and I blink, and all of a sudden I'm starting this. You know business here and there's all these things happening. So it is alive and well. And I think if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you know, I was, I was saying this morning to folks on the phone that, that, you know, tech companies, I think want to go to the coasts, you know, San Francisco or New York. But honestly, I think Detroit's a much better option. There's a lot of, um, I know Detroit's sort of known for blue collar workers and, you know, what have you, but there's a whole lot more going on now. You know, mm -hmm. these days there's all these artists here uh, moving here. There's, um, you know, the university is producing a lot of great talent that I'm looking to hire, you know. Um, so, you know, start with, with what you have and where you are. And I think that uh, there's a lot of potential here. Yeah, there's a good quote that goes, Detroit's big enough to matter to the rest of the world, but small enough for you to matter in it. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really exciting. There's also, there's a lot more... Um, like opportunities for nonprofits and there used to be the Wilson Center. I don't know if you yep. know about that. It's opening up and uh, you know, all these opportunities, this building that we're in right now, you know, all these opportunities for nonprofits. So it's a really exciting time and I can't wait to connect with anyone who's listening right now. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think you touched on a great point and that's, I think that's why this podcast kind of exists to yeah. highlight all these people that are doing things and yeah. that don't really get the opportunity to showcase themselves uh, that, you know, Quicken Loans does or yeah. these other yeah. companies that are downtown. Well, good for you for hosting it. Then. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, so for people listening or watching, if they want to get a hold of you, yes. how can they do so? Ah, so that's teamfemur.org. So T-E-A-M-F-E-M-R.org. Mm -hmm. um, you can donate straight on that website or email us, um, any of us, or join. If you're a developer, you can join our sort of development community in Slack. Um, if you're a clinician, you can test out the EMR online. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, I really appreciate you being on the show. 
And for everybody watching or listening, until next time, stay tuned. Cool.